This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to radial and ulnar shaft fractures, which is one of the topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, which of the following post-reduction forearm fracture patterns may be treated non-operatively in an otherwise healthy 22-year-old male? And the choices are 1. Displaced diaphyseal fracture of the radius, 2. Non-displaced diaphyseal fracture of the radius and a displaced diaphyseal fracture of the ulna, 3. Displaced diaphyseal fractures of both bones of the forearm with less than 10 degrees angulation after closed reduction, 4. An isolated mid-shaft ulna fracture translated 20% with less than 5 degrees of angulation, and 5. Gastillo grade 2 open fracture of the radius. So in adults, minimally displaced fractures of the ulna may be treated non-operatively. Even in the setting of minimal displacement, fractures involving the radial diaphysis or both bones of the forearm are at risk of displacing further and progressing to malunion or nonunion. Given the potential for a resulting loss of forearm rotation, open reduction internal fixation is indicated for almost all adult diaphyseal radius and both bone forearm fractures. But as far as the correct answer to this question, asking which of the fracture patterns may be treated non-operatively in an otherwise healthy 22-year-old male, the correct answer is 4. An isolated mid-shaft ulna fracture translated 20% with less than 5 degrees of angulation. Schult et al. review the management of both bone forearm fractures in adults. They review biomechanics, fixation, techniques, outcomes, and complications. They note that the goals of fixation in simple patterns are cortical opposition, compression, and restoration of forearm geometry. Anderson et al. treated 330 acute diaphyseal forearm fractures with compression plating from 1960 to 1970. At four months to nine years follow-up, they achieved a 97.9% union rate for the radius and 96.3% union rate for the ulna. Moving on to the next question. A polytrauma patient underwent the following procedures. 1. Statically locked intramedullary nailing for a right femoral shaft fracture. 2. Open reduction with plate and screw fixation for a right simple distal fibula fracture. 3. ORIF right middle third radius and ulna fracture. And 4. ORIF of a left humeral shaft fracture. What is the appropriate weight-bearing status for this patient? And the choices are 1. Weight-bearing is tolerated in all extremities. 2. Early protected weight-bearing for the right lower extremity in a walking cast. Weight-bearing is tolerated for the left upper extremity and non-weight-bearing for the right forearm. 3. Weight-bearing is tolerated in bilateral lower extremities and right upper extremity and non-weight-bearing in the left upper extremity. 4. Non-weight-bearing in the bilateral upper extremities and the right lower extremity. And 5. Non-weight-bearing in the right upper and lower extremities. Weight-bearing is tolerated in the left upper and lower extremities without a walking cast. So the standard postoperative weight bearing for locked medullary nailing for femoral shaft fractures and humeral shaft fractures is weight bearing is tolerated. Simple RIF ankle fractures may be managed with early protected weight bearing. RIF of the right middle third radius and ulnar fracture should be managed with a period of non-weight bearing due to risk of secondary displacement of the fracture. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Early protected weight bearing of the right lower extremity in a walking cast, weight bearing is tolerated of the left upper extremity, and non-weight bearing in the right forearm. So Tingstad et al. examined the effect of immediate weight bearing on plated fractures of the humeral shaft. They reported that immediate weight bearing on humeral shaft fractures treated with plating and full weight bearing did not have any negative effect on the union or malunion rates. 
Brumbach et al. evaluated the feasibility, safety, and efficacy of immediate weight-bearing after treatment of femoral shaft fractures with statically locked intramedullary nailing. Using biomechanical and clinical data, they showed that all fractures united with no loss of fixation or hardware failure. Starkweather et al. retrospectively assessed the complications and loss of reduction in patients who bore weight in a short leg cast within 15 days after surgical repair of acute unilateral closed ankle fractures. Of the 81 ankle fracture radiographs, 80, or 98.8%, showed no displacement in fracture reduction on the final follow-up examination. These results suggest early protected weight-bearing may be safe. So the correct answer to this question asking about weight-bearing status in a post-op polytrauma patient, the correct answer is two, early protected weight-bearing for the right lower extremity in a walking cast, weight-bearing is tolerated for the left upper extremity, and non-weight-bearing in the right forearm. Moving on to the next question, which of the following has been shown to be the greatest risk factor for refracture after implant removal from a radial shaft? And the choices are one, removal of locking screws, two, removal of small fragment plates, three, removal of metaphyseal implants, four, removal of implants less than one year after insertion, and five, removal of protective splinting from the limb earlier than 10 weeks postoperatively. So removal of implants earlier than one year after insertion is a risk factor for refracture of the bone after implant removal. So the correct answer to this question is four, removal of implants less than one year after insertion. The risk of refracture after hardware removal is multifactorial. Multiple variables have been studied, such as protective splinting for six weeks after hardware removal, waiting 12 months or more prior to hardware removal, and the location of the fracture. The variable that seems to correlate most with the risk of refracture is a diaphyseal location of the initial fracture. Large fragment plates, like 4.5 millimeter plates when removed, are also at higher risk for refracture in the forearm. DeLuca et al. reported on a case of patients who sustained a refracture of a forearm after implant removal. They noted that radiolucency at the site of the original fracture was seen in most refractured patients when the plate was removed. They also recommended delaying implant removal to two years after insertion to minimize risk. Rumble et al. reported that the incidence of refracture after forearm implant removal is 6% in their series. They found that early removal, lack of postoperative immobilization, and plate size are the most critical risk factors for refracture. Moving on to the next question. Longitudinal radio-ulnar dissociation, including essex lepresti fractures, requires disruption of the interosseous membrane. The interosseous membrane consists of all of the following ligaments except, and the choices are 1. Central band ligament, 2. Accessory band ligament, 3. Annular ligament, 4. Dorsal oblique accessory cord ligament, and 5. Distal oblique bundle ligament. So the interosseous membrane includes five types of ligaments, the central band, the accessory band, the distal oblique bundle, the proximal oblique cord, and the dorsal oblique accessory cord. The annular ligament is not a part of the interosseous membrane. The interosseous membrane bridges the radius and ulna and acts as a hinge for rotation of the radius about the ulna. The central portion is thickened and forms the central band, which is the most important ligament for interosseous membrane load distribution characteristics. Noda et al. in a cadaver study identified the precise anatomical insertions and attachment points of each of the five interosseous membrane components. 
They found the most distal and proximal ends of the radial origin of the central band were 53% and 64% of the total radial length from the tip of the radial styloid, whereas those of the ulnar insertion were 29% and 44% of total ulnar length from the ulnar head. Flafley et al. also performed a cadaveric biomechanical study applying compressive loads to specimens with interosseous membranes that are intact, cut, or cut-slash-reconstructed with flexocarpi radialis allografts. They found that reconstruction of the interosseous membrane can restore the normal load transfer characteristics and that the central band of the interosseous membrane is the most important portion of the interosseous membrane to be reconstructed. Moving on to the next question. Excision of heterotopic bone about the forearm or elbow can be done with limited recurrence rates as early as which of the following after initial injury? And the choices are 1. Once ankylosis of the forearm or elbow occurs, 2. 6 weeks, 3. 6 months, 4. 12 months, and 5. 18 months. So excision of heterotopic bone about the elbow and forearm was classically treated once the bone was mature and no further bone development was occurring or when the bone scan became negative. However, several studies have shown that earlier removal before this point in time is safe when done in conjunction with radiation therapy. The study by McAuliffe et al. is a retrospective review of heterotopic ossification about the elbow followed by 1,000 centigrades of radiation therapy with five fractions over one week as early as three months post-injury. They were able to achieve an average arc of motion of greater than 100 degrees. The study by Bingsner et al. is a review of heterotopic ossification excision of the forearm. They found that excision and radiation therapy followed by six weeks of endomethacin led to an increase of forearm motion from an average of 17 degrees to 136 degrees when the excision was done at four months post-surgery. But the correct answer to this question asking about excision of heterotopic bone about the forearm or elbow and when it can be done, the correct answer is three, six months. Moving on to the next question. A 12-year-old girl falls in gymnastics and sustains comminuted mid-shaft radius and ulnar fractures. Close reduction and cast immobilization are attempted, but fracture redisplacement with 20 degrees of angulation occurs. Surgical treatment includes close reduction and intramedullary fixation of both bones. What is the most common long-term complication for this fracture? And the choices are 1. Infection, 2. Malunion, 3. Loss of forearm rotation, 4. Refracture, and 5. Delayed union slash nonunion. So healing of forearm fractures in skeletally immature patients is the usual outcome. The use of intramedullary fixation has been reported to result in a lower frequency of refractures when compared to plate osteosynthesis due to the absence of diaphyseal holes after plate removal, which are considered stress risers. Regardless of implant technique, malunion and infection are infrequent. Loss of forearm pronation and supination is a common occurrence in surgically treated fractures due to the higher degree of soft tissue injury and periosteal stripping leads to fracture site instability and fracture comminution. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Loss of forearm rotation. Moving on to the next question. What is the primary advantage of two incisions compared to one for open reduction internal fixation of a both bone forearm fracture? And the choices are 1. Lower risk of synostosis. 2. Lower risk of wound complications. 3. Lower rate of radial neuritis. 4. Less pronator teres denervation. And 5. Lower malunion rate. So post-osteosynthetic synastosis is a known complication in both bone forearm fractures. The risk is increased in fractures of the proximal third of the ulna and the radius. Other risk factors include severity of injury, head trauma, and polytrauma. 
Vince et al. found synostosis was often associated with bone fragments or hardware in the interosseous space. Bauer et al. found one out of 65 cases treated utilizing the two-incision approach developed synostosis, while five out of 12 cases in which the fractures were stabilized using a single incision developed synostoses. They recommended a two-incision approach to both bone open reduction internal fixation. So the correct answer to this question, asking about the primary advantage of two incisions compared to one for open reduction internal fixation of a both bone forearm fracture, the correct answer is one, lower risk of synostosis. Moving on to the next question, treatment of an atrophic nonunion of the radial diaphysis should include which of the following? And the choices are one, elizarov fixation, two, electrical stimulation, three, ultrasound bone stimulator, four, plate exchange with autogenous cancellous grafting, and five, plate exchange with ulnar shortening osteotomy. So atrophic nonunions of the radius and ulna are fairly rare with modern techniques of fixation. The few reports that have been published have discussed the use of structural cortical cancellous bone grafts for the treatment of atrophic nonunions. The study by Ring et al. noted a 100% healing rate and improved patient-reported outcomes with 3.5mm plate and screw fixation and autogenous cancellous bone grafting for atrophic forearm nonunions. They recommend compression plating when possible to obtain optimal healing. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Plate exchange with autogenous cancellous grafting. Moving on to the next question. All of the following have been shown to increase the risk of refracture following removal of forearm plates used for internal fixation except, and the choices are 1. Initial fracture comminution, 2. Initial fracture displacement, 3. Use of 3.5mm dynamic compression plates, 4. Plate removal before 12 months, and 5. Immediate activity as tolerated following removal. So the article by Rumble et al. reviewed factors which influenced refracture after removal of the forearm plates. The factors that appeared to influence the refracture rate were degree of initial displacement and comminution, physical characteristics of the plate, early removal, and lack of post-removal protection. Plates removed under 15 months showed an increased risk of refracture. There were no fractures in this series using the 3.5 DCP plate. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Use of a 3.5mm dynamic compression plate has not been shown to increase the risk of refracture following removal of forearm plates used for internal fixation in a both bone forearm fracture, which is why choice number 3, use of a 3.5mm dynamic compression plate, is the correct answer in this accept question. Moving on to the next question. A 42-year-old male sustains a closed, isolated ulnar shaft fracture with 2 millimeters of displacement and 3 degrees of valgus angulation. He is treated conservatively with early range of motion, but presents at one year with a painful atrophic nonunion. What treatment is indicated at this time? And the choices are 1. Dynamic splinting, 2. Open autogenous cancellous bone grafting, 3. Open reduction internal fixation with autogenous bone grafting, 4. Close reduction and percutaneous pinning, and 5. Use of an implantable ultrasound device. So appropriate treatment of an atrophic nonunion of the ulna includes open reduction and internal fixation with autogenous bone grafting. The atrophic nature of the nonunion reveals that biology and not necessarily stability is the major issue of the nonunion. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Open reduction internal fixation with autogenous bone grafting. The article by Ring et al. reviews a case series of these patients and found that even in the face of significant preoperative bone resorption, good clinical outcomes and union rate is possible with open plating and grafting. 
The article by Street reviews intramedullary nailing slash pinning of the forearm, and they found a 7% non-union rate with this technique. And moving on to the final question for this review session, during open reduction and internal fixation of a both bone forearm fracture, restoration of the radial bow has been most associated with which of the following? And the choices are 1. Improvement in wrist extension strength, 2. Improvement in wrist flexion strength, 3. Restoration of forearm rotation, 4. Restoration of elbow range of motion, and 5. Decreased incidence of synostosis. So restoration of the anatomy of the radial bow directly correlates with the range of motion postoperatively, that is pronation supination. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Restoration of forearm rotation. The study by Shemich et al. found that restoration of the normal radial bow was related to the functional outcome. A good functional result, that is more than 80% of normal rotation of the forearm, was associated with restoration of the normal amount and location of the radial bow. Similarly, the recovery of grip strength was associated with restoration of the location of the radial bow towards normal. That's all for this question review session about radial and ulnar shaft fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.